It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, the CEO of New Zealand Ski, Mr. Paul Anderson. Paul, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Thanks, Laban. Uh, it's, it's great to be talking with you. Thank you very, very much for taking the time to come and share with us today. Hopefully, what will be some very inspirational uh, advice, guidance, whatever you want to call it. But before we get stuck into that side of things, Paul, can you tell us a little bit about Paul Anderson, the man, and your involvement with New Zealand Ski? Yeah, sure thing. Um, feel a little bit a little bit uncomfortable, I guess, about the uh, the prospect of um, providing inspiration. I've, I've I'm really a kind of a um, you know I'll, I'll lead from the front kind of person. We've just been through a really busy time on our mountains for the last couple of weeks, and I find that the best thing I can do is is get up there and just just muck in with um, with the team wherever I can. That's what really spins my wheels and. And I found that, um, you know, when I when I started this role, I actually said in the interview, what kind of CEO are you looking for? You're looking for someone who will sit in an office and, and spit out plans and numbers, or do you want someone who holds the stop-go sign on a, on a snowy day? And the board, being a family business, um, they wanted it all. So they said, well, we'll have both, thanks. I said, great, well, that, worked, that, that works for me. Um, so yeah, look, a little bit about me, maybe a little bit about my um, background. If I start with my professional background, then I'll move maybe into my personal background. Um, pretty pretty diverse. I'm I'm a trained accountant, but don't judge me um, because one of, one of the best compliments I've got in my career was I was once head of commercial and sales, um, uh, sorry, commercial and finance in Spark, which is a, a big telecommunications. Telecom, yeah. Yeah, yeah, telecom back in the day, and uh, one of our one of the biggest cowboys um, on our sales team said to me, "You know, you're the most right brain accountant I've ever met." And I said to him, <laughs> "Well, Warren, I'll, I'll take that as a big compliment. Thank you very much." Um, so yeah, long story short, I went to university in Christchurch. That was my hometown. Um, studied studied commerce, um, marketing, and, and accounting, majoring. More, more on the accounting side, and I always saw that as a bit of a fallback option. Um, but it provided me with a really good background to to kind of snaffle the roles that I was interested in. Um, when I got through, kind of halfway through my second year at university, I realised that um, uh, those were the grades that were going to be that were going to get me a job. And unfortunately, I was having a pretty good time. And while I was passing everything, the, the grades weren't stellar. Um, so in my third year, I decided to, to actually stay, do a master's degree and knuckle down and, and get some decent grades. Because they were back in the day where um, I say that the, a lot of employers said, don't worry about your grades. It's, it's all about the person. And I was kind of like, yeah, bullshit, because I didn't get any of those jobs I wanted, wanted to get. So um, that was the first learning. There's, no, uh, there's no, no substitute for good hard work. And I went back for another two years and, and got a first class honours degree um, in commerce from Canterbury. And that did open a few doors. So well done. straight out of university, I, I went into the New Zealand Treasury graduate program. Um, still in a bit of denial. I, I kind of thought, I, I think you made a mistake because I'm in, in, there, in here with all these guys who are, and, and, and women who were absolute rocket scientists. Um, <laughs> 
But um, I guess the thing that I did maybe a little bit differently in that role was I, I, I always I always took pride in explaining things in really simple terms. And when you're briefing ministers, that becomes quite valued because they're not necessarily necessarily accountants or economists. So you can say it in really plain English for them. Um, it, it makes it easier for them to do their jobs and, they, and then communicate that on to uh, the public. Um, so anyway, four years there, then did the classic Kiwi Aussie thing, went up um, to London, went into a bank up there, and again, was brutally honest in my um, in my interviews. I remember the guy at Michael Page Finance, I think it was back in the day, said to me, um, you know, you go into this banking job, what do, you, what do you know about banking? And I said, absolutely nothing. Um, and he said to me, why would I give you the job? And I said, well... You know, I, I work hard and, and I think I learn quite quickly. Um, so I secured a role at NatWest GFM, which um, back then was the biggest sterling trader in the world. Wow. Um, and we were doing, I was working with another Kiwi contractor on a project implementing a new FX dealing system, um, which, as I said, I knew nothing about. But um, Craig and I did that job. After six months, um, the project director asked us to go and do the implementations in uh, New York, Hong Kong, Tokyo, and Singapore, which wasn't a bad gig for a 27-year-old um, coming out of London. Wow. I had to tell my um, my then girlfriend, who was low. Well, actually, you know, sorry, she was my fiance at the time, now my wife. Oh, um, you got married. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> see you later. I'm, I'm, I'm off for, for a couple of months doing this thing. Um, they were good times and then uh, we came back to New Zealand and um, I went that was when I went into uh, Spark or it was telecom in the day and uh, was there when they bought an IT company called Genai um, and I was working in corporate finance and then that's when I made a big career call which was I'd done finance roles my whole career and I wanted to broaden myself out so I knew that you kind of start to, to, to hit this top where you're going, okay, the next step up is kind of financial controller slash CFO. Um, but I thought I wanted to learn more about the business. So that's when I went into this um, sales team and I went in as head of commercial finance. So I was their beanie, if you like, um, but far more sales focus and, and just loved it. You know, I, um, I remember the, the first week I was in that team and um, they were having their sales conference. And I don't know whether you've ever been to a sales conference, but um, it's, a, it's a lot of drinking, a lot of partying, and um, a lot of slapping each other on the back and telling each other what a great job you've done. Yep. And um, I remember after the first night, I, I phoned my wife and I said, these people are out of control. Um, but what I saw in them was just so much passion for our business. You know, they were, they were out there talking to customers every day, um, selling our selling our products, um, solving customers' problems, and they they were just they were just driven by this passion. Yes, you, you might say some of them were coin driven because they you know a lot of them were on, on big incentive plans, um, but I loved it. I just loved the emotion and and um, and that kind of, that side of the the way they operated. Um, from there, I took another sideways step into a purely operational role. So really breaking out of the finance um, saying at the same level, move back to Christchurch, which is my hometown. Um, shout out Christchurch. In, yeah, shout out Christchurch. Um, and I went into a role there called, it was called Head of Retail Data Provisioning, which sounds like is, is a pretty dry role. Um, <laughs> It was, a, it was a team who were responsible for doing all the provisioning of broadband and managed data solutions um, for telecoms customers and GIS customers in New Zealand. Um, about 200 people um, in Christchurch in Auckland. And what I learned there um, was that you don't actually need to understand um, what people do. You just need to be able to ask the right questions and kind of set them free to do a great job. Um, I remember I'd been in there about 12 months and uh, we had a, a leadership conference and Mark Radcliffe, who later became CEO of Chorus here, um, 
did a bit of a shout out to some of the people who he he was just trying to use examples of good leadership and to my surprise I, I was one of the ones and um, what had really happened there is they'd seen this big turnaround in the productivity of the retail data provisioning team and the only way I could describe it was I said well what I've tried not to do is get in these guys way because when I went into that role and went around that team and talked to them about what they all did, um, I actually said to them, I remember because I'd come out of that sales role and I said, you guys deal with our customers more than the sales team do. Do you know that? And they're like, what? Really? And I said, yeah, you're, 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 you're almost embedded in their IT teams. You're working with them every second of your day. Um, and so what I did again was just got out of their way, asked them what they needed to do their jobs better, um, did your classic kind of, if you like, the, the, the geeky way to do it, say it is the Lean Six Sigma approach of how do we make your processes better, but we called it past the customer. So how do we deliver what the customer wants faster um, and just set them free to do their thing? Um, so that was, that, was, that was a really, really good learning for me that, you know, I, I didn't really need to understand what they did because they were in configuring the core of the system and dispatching patch contract. But yeah, exactly. I was, I was like, that. you know, I, I, I just need to fight your corner and um, because you know what you want to do and you know what you, you know how you want to do it. Um, so that job was about a year and a half. Um, and then I, um, by chance, a role in Christchurch came up and the role was General Manager Corporate Services for Christchurch City Council, which is the municipality in Christchurch. Um, that role appealed to me because it was it was basically the, the CFO, but then it had property, IT, and procurement um, on top of that. So a really broad role. Um, again, didn't think I had much of a chance of getting it. And um, funnily enough, my wife was actually working at Christchurch City Council at the time as a public affairs manager. Um, <laughs> and I said to her, well, you know, should I, should I have a go at this role? And um, she was like, eh. It'd be kind of funny working in the same place, but yeah, you you probably won't get it, so why not? Um, <laughs> so I did get I did get it, <laughs> and um, I was kind of lucky going it? into that. <laughs> I was um, I was lucky going into that role because, and and I say lucky because the guy who was CEO at the time, this guy by the name of Tony Marriott, and Tony had done that role before, and I guess whatever he saw in me, he knew that any of the experience or skills I didn't have he could help me with um, and I asked him about 12 months in well what why did you choose me and he just said um, he said look I just thought I could get on with you you know I thought, wow. I thought you were smart I thought I could get on with you I thought we could work well together and we did work really well together um, that was quite a ride and uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll come back later to talk about um, the earthquakes because I was effectively CFO for the Christchurch City Council when um, the city was decimated by um, two earthquakes in 2010 and 2011. So well, that feel, was... Feel free to get into that, Paul, if you'd like. Yeah, well, yeah, um, lots of learnings out of that. Um, out of that, you know, my, I always said my time at Christchurch City Council, which was about um, six years, um, kind of had three parts to it. One was climbing this enormous learning curve where I, you know, I'd never done property before, so I was working with a property team trying to understand what made them tick. Um, the finance side I knew a little bit better, but um, obviously it was on a grander scale than I'd seen before, and it also had um, tax or, or you know rates because we charge rates, um, and the whole political element where my treasury background was really useful for communicating well with our councillors. Um, so the first part was was climbing that that learning curve. Um, the second part was the earthquakes, um, or the the immediate response to the earthquakes, which was um, uh, you know it, it was it was quite something because everyone in Christchurch was dealing with their own personal situations as well as dealing with their work situations. And just just know, to cut you off there, Paul. Just to cut you off there. So just for the listener. Can you just tell us what happened in Christchurch in 2011? Yeah, yes. Sure. So um, 
September 2010 was the first earthquake, um, and that was a, I believe, a 7.1. Um, and very shallow, very shallow. Very shallow, yeah. So I remember my, my wife and I, we were actually, it was a, I think it was a Friday night because the Saturday morning we were getting up and driving to Wanaka for a week skiing. And, um, you know, the ground shook and uh, uh, my, my, my genius um, suggestion at 4.37 line of bed was it's an earthquake, um, which we were pretty conscious of. That earthquake actually didn't do that much damage to Christchurch. I mean, it's all relative. It happened in the middle of the night. I, I believe there was one, maybe two people killed um, from falling masonry. Um, and then... Um, there are a few buildings that were weakened and so on. So we went into an emergency response phase. It wasn't, we thought it was bad until the February earthquake happened. The February earthquake was actually a lesser, lesser on the Richter scale, but it was, as you said, very shallow and it was also a sideways shake. So quite a different earthquake. I remember, you know, I was, I was probably in denial about, the fact that we could possibly have another earthquake because we used to stand our ironing board up in our laundry, right? And I remember saying about two months after the September earthquake to my wife, can we, can, can we, oh, she, she had laid it down, right? Because she thought there was going to be another earthquake. And I said, can we just put that back to how it was? Because what city of this size ever has two earthquakes in close proximity? Well, she was right. I was wrong, of course. So that February one was pretty was 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 horrific. Um, I was at council building uh, when it hit. Um, there was extensive damage, you know, the inside the building. The building we were in a um, a pillar and beam building that swayed a lot. The lights fell down. The 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 um, the linings came off the walls. Um, desks were thrown around. People were, you know, very traumatised. Um, I was just finishing a council committee actually and talking to one of the councillors and uh, managed to drag her under the table while the, the shaking lasted. And then as we as we exited the building, fortunately our building didn't fall down, um, but as we exited the building and you literally had to climb the mound outside the building because the building had shunted the street sideways and created a you know, four or five metre hill that you had to climb over. Wow, Jesus. It became very apparent that we were we were in a very um we're in a very serious event. Um so we we activated the emergency operations centre um and went the, the emergency operations centre was just over the road from our council building and the art gallery, um, which on the surface looked like the worst building possible to have an emergency operations centre in because it's got, it had a massive glass facade, but glass kind of moves nicely when the ground moves and um, we only lost, I think, one or two panes in that in that whole facade the whole time. Wow. We started that, the emergency operations centre up and then um, the next year was probably the, the response phase and then we went into a, a recovery phase where we were um, negotiating with the Crown on who was going to pay for what um, and also at the same time leading the city. And, you know, the th probably the most distasteful part of the whole earthquake experience in Christchurch was the politics that came out. Um, everyone, let's put my rose tinted glasses on, which I'm reasonably good at doing. Everyone was trying to do the right thing. Um, but inevitably, egos get get in the way, mm -hmm. and um, we had a lot of people come from our government who we needed help from, um, who kind of overstepped their mandate, in my view, um, and and did things perhaps that weren't best for our community, um, but in their view were the right things to do, and we we can we can dig through some of that. Um, but yeah, then, in, so two years after the earthquake, um, my wife actually saw this job advertised, um, which is CEO of NZ Ski. Uh, I thought, well, I've never, I've never thought of being working in the ski industry, passionate about skiing, because my wife and I have always skied, and I, I'm not from a skiing family. I can come back to my family later, but um, I, I always love the outdoors. And, and uh, so I um, said to her, well, you know, I, I, I'm not a tire kicker, so if I'm going for it, I'm going for it. Are you prepared to move to Queenstown? She went, no, we'll see what happens. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> so, thought you would have learned a lesson by now. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I went into that interview, and it's a family business. So um, NZ Ski is owned by Trojan Holdings, um, and Trojan is a, is, a, is a very diversified business across um, property, farming, um, transport and logistics, and tourism. Um, it's, uh, it's owned by a family. Um, uh, the, 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 the founder is Sir John Davies. Um, Sir John's in his late 70s now, still very active in the business and, and just a fantastic guy to work for because um, he's very direct. Um, you never wonder what he's thinking and the decision making is um, rocket fast compared to when I was in council. Um, but, you know, I went into that interview and um, I, it was 45 minutes um, of, of chat with the board, mainly with John, and uh, came out of the interview, phoned my wife, she said, how'd you go? I said, look, uh, not really sure. It was kind of like sitting down talking to my father-in-law about <laughs> life and philosophies and what you like and what you don't like. I said, I don't know, we'll see what happens. Put the phone down. Then the um, the recruitment firm rang me and said, well, you're the preferred candidate. And that was, that was my first example of how swift the decision-making process was. And John's a really intuitive businessman. Um, and he had, they, they had, well, that board had already done their due diligence on me. Um, so it was really a matter of having a chat, seeing if we got on well, and, um, and the rest is history. And, I've loved it. It's a it's a it's a fantastic role. Um, working in the south of the South Island, you you really you you work on the basis of trust, and it did take a while for me to to develop that trust with the with the family. Um, I, so I certainly feel like I've got it now, seven years in. Um, I, I got appointed to the parent company board last year, which I, I found a real honour. Congratulations, um, by the way. Thank you. It, it, you know, and it reflects John's wish to work with people that he trusts. Um, he would rather, I think, bring up his key executives and have kind of managing director type positions across his business than bring in uh, more independence, which more independent directors, I mean, which would probably you would, you would get take that advice from a. Um, from someone looking at it from a pure governance perspective. But yeah. I, I can tell you in the, you know, I've, I've worked in central government, local government, banking, um, telecommunications, and now for a family business. And there's no right or wrong in governance. There's just different. And as a CEO or leader in any of those businesses, you really just need to understand or empathize, I guess is the thing, is empathize what drives the people who are making the decision and um and respect those uh respect those values that they're they're trying to bring into their decision making whether they're politicians or private business owners um, because at the end of the day they're the ones that have got to make the calls and have got to be accountable for those calls well it's an extraordinary rise uh and it and it sounds fantastic like especially if you put that on paper and and i suppose that the one thing that i'm curious to know paul is where did you learn all these key values that have that have held you in such good stead the whole whole of your life. I, you know, I, th- I think you learn those everywhere. Um, you know, I, I've probably learned more for people who have worked for me than the people I've worked for. Um, but you've got to look for those opportunities in every turn. Um, you know, I guess if I go back to you know, the things that shape me or have shaped me personally. Um, I'm from, I'm youngest of a family of eight. Wow. Um, and Catholic? Catholic family. Yeah, good Catholic <laughs> family from Christchurch. Four girls, four girls, four boys. Um, my father passed away when I was nine. And um, that's probably the, the single biggest event that's, that's probably shaped who I am. Um, but also, I think having such a diverse family, um, you know, there's eight of us spread over 13 years. Um, so I probably saw a lot of things as a kid that a lot of thing, kids don't see because my, my brothers and sisters weren't, you know, they, they were doing things that um, I wouldn't have seen if I, if I had younger brothers and sisters. Um, so I wasn't, uh, I wasn't naive. Um, 
but I also grew a real independence and um, and 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 a respect, I think, for different views and different people. Um, and it's something I've had to learn about myself, particularly more recently in this role, where you know I'm looking across a, a far more diverse team, you know, spanning everything, operations, marketing, the whole thing, and the fact that. You know, one of the things I often say is not everyone's good at everything. Um, in fact, no one's good at everything. And you've got to be able to work out how you can get the best out of every, every person um, and, and give them those opportunities to, to, to shine. Um, but you know, I think the, in terms of what shaped me, you know, losing my father at nine, definitely, and, and then that, that broad family um, with lots of different ideas and and... You know the just 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 the the ability to respect different people. Um, my mother's obviously um, been a massive part of my life because um, looking up to her all my life. She was she was a nurse, so she when Dad died, she had five of us still at home. Wow. Um, worked full time for well for for as long as I could remember. Certainly, well after um, I was at university. Um, never batted an eyelid, incredibly stoic. Um, and she just passed away earlier this year. Um, massive thing for my family. Wow, and, sorry um, to think, hear that. Yeah, thank you. The, the thing she's really left us with is, um, yeah, just, just I think that independence, that um, stoicism, um, that kind of no fuss, no stress um, way of getting on with things. Um, and ultimately, you know, like, when you've got a big family, you're, you're spread out across the world. But she left us um, as a tighter unit um, because we all came together to be with her in her, in her final months. Um, so kind of a nice way for her to go, even though um, we never thought she was going to go because she was in perfect health right up until the end. Wow. The thing we spoke about off camera, Paul, is the growing up without a father puts you at odds at, really being a functional contributing member of society uh, compared to someone that grew up, you know, with a functional um, parent relationship. Was there any point in your life growing up that you were close to veering down a path that maybe you didn't want to go down? Um, not really. I, you know, it, it's not that it wasn't hard, but I was kind of, I think, I think the respect, my, my respect for my mother never never put me down that path because you know she was always working so hard to provide whatever we needed and we you know we never wanted for anything but we didn't really know what we didn't what we didn't have because we were happy we had a lot of us and um you know we we had things we did together and and so on but um yeah you know going to going to high school without a father St Bede's which is the college I went to in Christchurch is a really a really a real father and son kind of place and and dad had actually been chairman of the pta a couple of years before i got there so he died in the in the um interim and um that was kind of tough i was probably quite a quiet kid at at high school um i always you know i always did all right ac academically and i um i did all right sporting wise so i was kind of and all rounder, but never to a really high level, but I just enjoyed participating. Probably the thing that really blew, that, that, that gave me a bit of a blow at high school was I, I wasn't made a prefect. And I remember mum being very angry about that because she said, oh, you know, if your father was around, you would have been made prefect. Um, but for me, I've kind of never been much of a, much of a victim. I don't, I don't like sitting around going, oh, that wasn't fair. Um, I kind of went, well, so why wasn't I a prefect? Maybe people haven't noticed me. Um, maybe, you know, for whatever reason, you kind of have to look at yourself and go, what could I have done differently to change that outcome? And that's always been, it's the way I've looked at things is when things have gone wrong, um, the best way to look at things is, what could I have done differently? Because that's the only thing I can control, right? Is the things that I've done to lead to that outcome if I had that time again, what would I do differently that might lead to a different outcome? Um, so it just made me reflect on that. And, uh, and um, yeah, and, you know, that was it. So you know, growing up without a father at high school, that was tough. 
Um, but you kind of learn that independence pretty quick and you learn to look after yourself pretty quick. Um, I was a pretty small kid. So I was, I was the second smallest in, uh, uh, at St. Beads when I was there in, in year, what is it, now, year nine, form three. And I remember, um, I remember getting getting bullied by some of the bigger bigger kids, but um, they only do it once because once they learn that you're a bit, bit much of a handful, they move on to someone else. So. <laughs> Good work. <laughs> the, uh, the, the high school that you went to for the listeners is – one of the rival schools against the high school that I went to, Christchurch Boys High. <laughs> and we, we usually beat you though, don't we? Labor? Well, I haven't been keeping too close an eye in the last few years. I think I think there's half a dozen All Blacks playing in the high school team by the yeah. sounds of it. It's pretty extraordinary. They call it the factory, I think, for the production yeah. of all the amazing sports stars. But the, um, you know, because I, I think you're, how old are you, Paul? I'm 49. 49. So you're just nine years older than I. And yeah. I think corporal punishment had was still in play, I think, when you were at school. Yeah, pretty close to it. It was, yeah. So did you manage to avoid getting a hiding from teachers? At, during- no, no, I got, I got a couple. I, I mean, it was always ridiculous. It was things that, you know, you, you get caned for things that, you know, you're on the wrong side of a fence or something like that. And you go, really? And you've you've kind of didn't cane me for all those other things I did. But, um, yeah, I, I never had too many difficulties getting a couple of cuts, as the as the priest used to say. Uh, you, you just took your punishment and moved on. It certainly um, play, played, to, played to my kind of um, ideals of getting things over and done with quick and and getting out there and not being stuck behind for a detention. <laughs> oh God! Now you're taking me back. I uh, I had the pleasure of reconnecting with a teacher that taught me at Middleton Grange, the first school I went oh, to yeah? uh, when yeah. I was six. And during the course of COVID, Paul, I've written my very first book, and the book is about periods of my life. And there was one particular day back in 1986. It was my birthday. And a, there was a temporary teacher or relief teacher that asked me what I was doing. And, uh, you know, mum and dad weren't together and mum had no money. And, and I said, look, it's my birthday. And she said, what are you doing? And I said, uh, mum said she's got no money, so, but she'll make it up to me later on. And as I left school later that day, she ran up to me with an envelope full of money, had $30 in there. And I never had an opportunity to thank her but in the writing of the book, we launched this manhunt at Middleton Grange trying to find her. And the whole school was going through old records and all this other stuff. And they found this woman. Well, they thought they did. And she had passed away and we're like, oh, no. But then it wasn't her. And they found this woman who's now a priest in da- uh, out in the outer skirts of Christchurch. And I had the absolute pleasure of ringing her up and connecting, reconnecting with her and reading her the chapter of the book. And it was an incredibly humbling experience uh, in my life. And nice. so, yeah, and, and, uh, and she remembered me. She didn't remember the incident because she must have right. done it a couple of times. Very frowned yeah. upon back then, like didn't even tell her husband about it. Um, and I just thought what a great school memory. For you, Paul, was there any other... Pivotal moments, memory-wise, from school or your youth that are worthwhile sharing. From from school, no. I mean, the I think from then on, as I as I said, I went, I went from school into university, reasonably normal university career. You know, um, apart from the realization that actually there's no substitute for hard work. Um, and once I did knuckle down and and got the grades that. I, that that I could be proud of um, that started to open those doors, but then I guess going into treasury, the um, the, the 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 thought of backing yourself, and once I once I got myself out of this rut of this is a mistake, can't believe I'm here, and it probably took you know it probably took a year, eighteen months until I actually believed that I was worthy of being there, um, and and that's because. They, they, they're pretty brutal at Treasury about ranking. You know, they go, well, 
you're the top, you're the second, you're the third, and you know you get 12, 12 analysts or two. And they, they also, you come out with a first class honours degree and you go in there as a trainee analyst, so they know how to cut you off at the knees pretty quick. Um, but you know, I, I was one of the top two analysts in my year, and I started to think, ah, oh, actually, maybe I'm not that. You know, maybe I've got a few clues, and so it's just about building that confidence slowly. Um, probably, you know, the the experience in London with getting shoulder tap to go and do that work overseas, and then when I came back to telecom and I got shoulder tapped by um, a very senior. Oh, he was actually group financial controller at the time. He said, I want you to apply for this job because I think you'd be great at it. And I hadn't even thought of it. Um, I still didn't have that aspiration that I was that that I that I could do better and better and better. Um, but he could see it. And I, I I loved working for him. I got the role um and that exposed me to the senior exec of Telecom and Teresa Gatting, who was then, uh, I think she was the, one of the youngest um, female CEOs New Zealand had seen at that time. And she was fabulous to work for. Um, it gave me exposure to a really senior level. <clears throat> but most importantly, working with um, the group financial controller, Peter Garty, um, and I went into that role expecting I was going to learn all about corporate finance and all that kind of thing from him. Um, but I didn't learn that. What I learned from him was um, about taking a genuine interest in your team um, because he was he was fabulous. You know, like I'd go in there and we'd yarn for 45 minutes of an hour meeting about what we did in the weekend and we'd both ride bikes back then, blah, blah, blah. 15 minutes, nail the work and get on with it. But he was like that with everyone he worked, that worked for him. He would know something about them, about their families, um, and he had a real genuine care, caring about him. Um, and he got the best out of people. And as I said, that's I think as leaders, that's what we we that's what any decent leader should aspire to is getting the best out of the people. You know, the old Jim Collins adage of getting the right people in the bus. Um, if you believe you've done that, then your best thing to do is get out of their way and, and let them do their jobs. Um, you don't necessarily need to motivate them, but you need to do everything in your power not to demotivate them or not to put them into demotivating situations. Um, so working for Peter was was fabulous for me at that stage of my career to be able to learn some of that stuff. Um, and the other thing that I thought I think was really important then, two things. One, um, Teresa... Teresa had taken over Telecom um, from its former CEO, uh, Roderick Dean. And Roderick's an absolute legend in New Zealand business. Um, but And I, I never worked with Roderick, but as I understand, he's quite command and control, so quite autocratic. And Teresa wanted to bring a more, um, probably let, let's say a more market-led focus to the company rather than an engineering-led approach. And she put her senior, her top hundred managers on um, this this journey that we call breakthrough, um, which was I, I was just lucky I just squeaked in at that stage to the top hundred in telecom, and it was it was fantastic. You know, I was I was what well, I've been twenty eight then, um, getting some some great exposure to senior execs and getting some training that um, I, I was lucky just to squeak into. So, and it wasn't training about, you know, or design or finance or marketing or any of, any of that stuff. It was soft skills um, and, you know, EQ um, and, and learning about yourself and learning about how the way you behave and the way um, you, you know, you, you're, the impact of your emotions on other people and just being aware of that, um, that was that was huge for me because at that stage of my career, I went to work and I had a work persona and I didn't bring my own persona to that job because I, I thought that was the wrong thing to do. Um, but what I learned through that training was the power of emotion used well. Um, and, you know, that's something I've carried with me um, ever since then, it's, it's, and and you know that doesn't mean just being emotional and uh, and 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 throwing 
throwing tantrums or being deliriously happy. But as you know, Laban, it's more about um, being aware of how powerful emotions in the workplace can be. Um, but also, you know, being a caring person and genuinely caring about other people. Um, you asked before, you know, you know, the, 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 where, where have you learned things? And you learn things all the way along. And, you know, one probably the biggest thing I've learned from my wife, uh, two things are comparing her to that manager I talked about before, Peter Garty, about caring about people and being genuinely interested in people. And I watch, I've watched over the years when my wife have, has talked to other people because she asks questions like no one else can, and you wouldn't believe what people tell her um, because she is genuinely interested, and people people latch onto that, you know, and they 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 trust and they want to tell. She'll she'll get annoyed sometimes because then she won't get the same thing reciprocated to her. But you know, I always say to her, I always say, look, you don't you don't understand how powerful that gift you've got of asking all these questions in a, in such a genuine way, you know. And you know, she's very generous with her time, and she'll talk to anyone. Um, and I think she gets the reward for that from from the way people open up. Sometimes it's exhausting because they open up about stuff that um, <laughs> that perhaps is is uh, quite confronting. Um, there was another one I was going to mention too. Oh, the the other thing from her is is about communication, because um, she's she's an ex journalist and and she went she was press secretary and went into PR, um, did that kind of work. Um, now she's a, a writer and editor, um, but talking to her about communication and and how to communicate and different ideas of communication, um, both in the way the way she is personally, but also in her professional capacity has been absolutely invaluable because, you know, I, I would have missed so, just so, so much by by communicating the way I thought it should be communicated rather than putting myself in the shoes of, um, of the people being communicated to. It's, it's, uh, it's so important, Paul. And I, I spoke to, uh, Sir Steve Hansen about this and the and the power of vulnerability and anyone that's read anything by Brene Brown and knows her story will know. You know how she got up and on a TED on a TED talk shared how she'd had a breakdown and had troubles with alcohol. Yeah, and then wanted to get the video taken down the next day, and and it didn't get taken down because it had been distributed already and and ended up transforming her life and affected probably, well, it would be over millions and millions of people now. And it's something that I've absolutely taken on board in the last five years in my own journey, Paul. Like, yeah. And and I think, you know, in the process of giving up drinking and drugs and gambling and sex and philanthropy, <laughs> all of those things, it, it, it uh, they stoked my ego for a long time. Yeah. And, and now I, you know, I'm not perfect, God, far from it, but, um, it's allowed me to be interested in other people, and I and I, and I always have been. But you know, and and particularly this platform has taught me to listen way more. Particularly being yeah. a speaker and and yeah. um, and just witnessing firsthand, because I am so comfortable now with all of my demons, I, yeah. I share them in the right environment, and and very brazen about them too. And the the like your wife, you know, the people that open up and share things with you as well um, through the power of storytelling, you know, there's a physical response. There's a dopamine and oxytocin and serotonin response that, that happens physically. And when that happens, you, you become more bonded and closer to the other person. And when yeah. you feel bonded and more close, you are you're way more likely to open up and get a much better response. So from a leadership point of view, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So, so as CEO of New Zealand Ski, which you're in charge of Mount Hutt, the Remarkables, Coronet Peak. Correct. Anyone else? 
No, that's, that, that's our that's our portfolio. <laughs> it's not a bad couple of mountains, three mountains. Yeah. How has your leadership style changed since 2013 to now? That's a great question. Um, I think I think it's um, I think it's matured. You know, it's um, been in a role where, as I said before, you need to appreciate the diversity that's required to operate in an organisation like this, right? Um, so I can bring all those core hard skills, if you like, around finance and I've learned a bit about marketing and, and what, what it takes to make the mountains tick. Um, but it's the, it's the soft skills around harnessing a purpose for everyone to, to latch on to and pointing everyone in the same direction um and i don't mean i don't mean you know providing lifts to the top of the mountain or buses up there that that's all that's fine you can you know robots can do that um but it's sharing it's sharing something in terms of a passion in terms of a purpose i guess the one thing that really struck a chord um with me was the um Oh, sorry, his name just escapes me. Oh, Simon Sinek, you, you would have watched some of Simon's stuff. Um, and when he does the the TED talk on creating purpose and finding your when why, I was at, yeah, your why, right? And when I was at Christchurch City Council, right? So we, I, I bought Balance Scorecard into Christchurch City Council, and, and the piece that was missing for us there was the why. Um, and when I came into NZ Ski, we had a lot of those mechanical places, pieces in, in place um, from the former CEO. So I could actually focus on getting this team focused on what really drives us, and 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 going. It's almost like a, a you know a hierarchy of needs. What is what is the top of that tree? Because you know providing buses and food and lift passes and ski rental that's sure ain't the top of the pile. Um, the, the, the top of the pile for us is sharing our passion for snow sports and for the environments we work in with as many people as we possibly can. Um, and you can see it every day. You go to our mountains and the faces of the lift operators as they put people on lifts, um, the ski instructors as they're teaching people and watching them progress. Um, parents who are taking their kids up there and getting them on snow and seeing people have this fun and develop this passion. Um, that That's really what we're about. And for me, I think the big learning for, in, in this role, I knew, always knew it needed to be done, but that's where I've taken myself to. I'm going, I don't need to, I don't need to be too focused on the metrics of this business anymore. Um, what I need to be focused on is the, the passion and the drive and just make sure everything's always pointed at that and driven by that. Yeah, that's that's kind of that's that's where I've where I've, I've shifted my leadership, I guess. Um, the other the other big thing I, I mentioned before that I, I tend to put on my rose tinted glasses, and that that's a weakness. And and it was something that struck me. I, I did a three hundred and sixty degree feedback um, and in my role at telecom. So this is quite a long time ago, maybe 15 years ago. And one of the bits of feedback I got was I didn't deal with poor performance um, fast enough. And I thought, oh. And I kind of gave myself the excuse that I don't deal with poor performance publicly, but I do um, in private. Um, but if I was a little bit more honest with myself, maybe I would have said, no, I, I actually don't do it fast enough and that has bitten me a few times uh, where I've ignored behaviours that that haven't been constructive um, and in some cases have been destructive to some of the teams. Um, so that's one of the things I've, I've really um, focused on in more recent years is dealing with things quickly and honestly and perhaps not worrying too much about um, it's not offending the person that you're providing the feedback to. It's just being empathetic to the way they're going to listen to the feedback and making sure they get it. Um, because if you don't, the behaviours perpetuate. 
um, and and they can be very uh, very destructive. So yeah, that, that's been that's been a, I, I hope a big shift, but one of those big work ons because I always like to think the best of everyone. Um, so I never like to think anyone comes to work not wanting to do a great job, um, especially when they work for a company like this, where you know literally what we're doing every day is making people happy because we're delivering them to a mountain and and, and connecting them to a passion. Well, I tell you something. Paul, I um, at the end of 2019, because I had a crack at running my own recruitment business last year, because I've worked yep. in IT recruitment for 14 years prior to this, and it didn't work. It was a total unmitigated disaster, and for a couple of reasons. And I use those words for effect only because they ended up being the greatest blessing in disguise. But yeah. I took a I took a five week contract working for a, a superannuation fund over here as a hired gun to help help them with this big workload. And I, they will never say that I was fired, but I was fired with two days to go because someone took offense to a conversation that happened in the cafeteria regarding um, me talking about uh, diet and mental health, having a link. Right. And, and as I walked out of the building and that was the feedback, someone took offense to you talking about the link between mental health and diet which yeah. if you get on any PubMed or any science paper, there's thousands <laughs> of papers suggesting that there's a direct link. And having yeah. come through my own experience, I can tell you right now, it's 100% the truth, right? So, but I, I walked out of there a bit of a stunned moment because I'm not used to being sacked. And it, it was a real dent to my ego, but it ended up being a massive blessing in disguise. And maybe with the benefit of hindsight, I wasn't doing the job that I was maybe employed to do because maybe I was distracted from my true passion and it forced me into doing my true passion much faster. So for me, being sacked ended up being a huge gift. Yep. And, you know, I think that like, you know, what you're coming to terms with and the, the way that you are able to, you know, make a quicker decision and sacking someone for poor, poor performance or whatever, um, you know, it's not about upsetting them. It's about really giving them an opportunity to move on to the next chapter of their life. So, you know, no one's perfect. You sound like yeah. you do a lot of things right and, you know. I, you know, and, and what the, the new leader of the National Party actually said uh, a couple of days ago um, in an interview, you don't learn anything from your, from your successes, but you learn a lot from your mistakes. And I think it's, you know, that's, a lot of people can should listen to that and just take that moment to reflect when something doesn't go quite right on what happened there, what could I have done differently? You know, there's so much of that below the line behavior in any business and it's about, about pushing yourself above the line and, and asking yourself those more positive questions about what I could have done differently rather than looking to blame um, and drop below the line and, and just you know, flick it off to, to something else that you don't think you can have any impact on um, because most likely you can. Now, a bit of a change in topic, but it's something equally important. There's no Australians skiing on your mountains at the moment. <laughs> Has that been a blessing in disguise? Um, from my revenue line, no. Um, no, no, you know, I'd say, I'd say no. Look, we, you know, we love having the Australians in town. Um, there's a real vibrancy that comes into Queenstown at this time of the year with people from all over the world here, again, sharing a passion, um, whether it's a passion for coming up our mountains or, um, or just enjoying what's downtown in Queenstown. It, it's, it's just cool. And we are missing it. Um, so we, we're desperate to get it back, but uh, I can't see it. You know, our planning is not that it'll happen anytime this year, um, sadly. Um, and you know, COVID has just been another one of those challenges you grab with both hands and run with. Um, there's been a few in my career now, so I kind of, you know, you get it. You know, one earthquake, two earthquakes in Christchurch. Um, I was actually chair of the Christchurch Adventure Park um, a few years ago when we'd been operating for six weeks when the Port Hills fires in Christchurch wiped it out um, and oh, we had to re God. rebuild a brand new business. <laughs> you and now, 
<laughs> now and now COVID, um, which is a more worldwide thing. So if there's something that I will say, it's that shit does happen um, and you need to be ready for it. Um, I actually came back um, after my mother's funeral. My mum died on the 29th of February, had about a week in Christchurch with my family and I could see this COVID thing developing overseas. Um, and I came back and sat down with my senior team here. I said, what are you thinking about this COVID thing? And they, they, they really hadn't switched their minds into that station. I said, guys, it's coming. Um, we need to actually start to plan for it now um, and be ready because and back then the, 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 the worry was a, a depressed demand, um, but that was really the least of our worries. So, but at least we started to really think about it. And I think that experience in dealing with the earthquakes in Christchurch um, equipped me far better for preparing my team to face this um, or, or helping them be ready for it. Because, uh, of course, then we went into lockdown and it was far more back to the response to the earthquakes. And I did notice and I talked to them actually about how my leadership had changed um, because during that time, what they wanted was fast decisions and fast direction. Um, you know, we, we didn't really have time for consensus building. Um, and I apologised a few times for being more autocratic than what I, I want to be as a leader. Um, but the feedback I was getting was, no, no, that's no, fine. Fine. We just want to know. We just want to know. We just want to get on with it. Um, and I think we did well as a business preparing ourselves for um, every eventuality. I was, I was sick of talking about scenarios, but it was certainly worth doing. Certainly sorry from a finance manager who had to keep on tumbling those scenarios. <laughs> well, what, what's next for CEO Paul Anderson? What other aspirations and goals in life do you have that you haven't ticked off the, the list yet? Um, you probably start to think about, you know, what's my legacy going to be, right? And um, I mean, I'm, I'm still pretty young. I've got plenty of years in front of me. Um, but one of the things that really spins my wheel in this role is um, developing something on the ski areas that's going to be there for a long time. Um, we've, we've got a, a growing market. And once we get the Aussies back, we're going to be growing a lot more. Um, and we've got some fantastic terrain that we want to develop out beyond um, out beyond the Remarkables. Uh, it's called the Doolins. Uh, that that's you know it's it's a, it's a big, it's long term. Um, it would it would be a step change to the Queenstown economy. So it really feeds um, more economic activity into our town. Um, the other part of it is, I guess, building this business from being a four-month-a-year business into being a 12-month-a-year business. So, you know, expanding. And last year, we kicked off a summer operation at Coronet Peak. Um, of course, with COVID coming along, we thought we might shelve that, but we're not going to. We want, we want to keep that momentum going um, because if we, if we stop it, then we have to start from scratch again. So we're going to keep that going um, and build, you know, more employment, more opportunities and, and more ways to share um, that environment. Um, yeah, so, you know, I'm, I, that that's what's spinning my wheels at the moment. I, I love being here. Um, I love the lifestyle this industry provides me. Um, and I love leading this team and, and working with the, with the governance that I've got. So it ticks a lot of boxes. Um, where to after this job? I don't know. <laughs> I, and, and, and I say that in all honesty, we talk about it a lot, um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy doing what I'm doing at the moment. And I've, I've said to my chairman, you know, as long as I'm adding value, I'm very happy to be here. Well, for anyone that hasn't been to Queenstown or seen it on TV, it is ridiculous. It's, it's, it is ridiculous. It's the only way to describe it. I've been there many, many times being from the South Island of New Zealand myself um, I can probably foresee maybe the the addiction or the allure of um, ending up staying and living in Queenstown. When we spoke to Steve Hansen, he he was living down in Queenstown at the time, one of a few, yeah. no doubt. And I got some other friends of mine that live down there as well. And I can't ever see them going going anywhere. And maybe maybe there's uh, have you ever heard of the sport tumbling, Paul? No, what's that? 
So it's like it's downhill mountain running, but you oh, yeah. and and it's <laughs> I don't know I don't know what the longevity of any career in tumbling in, but it can't be very long because it's such a destructive sport. But um, maybe during the summer months, there's some opportunity to host the World <laughs> Tumbling Champions there. Tumbling the yeah. Could, could well be. Could well be. It's, Any it, idea is a good idea. Well, it, you know, Queenstown, the, the capital of extreme sports in the world, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, and, for sure. Uh, yeah. Well, Paul, uh, is there anything that you wanted to finish on before we wrap this up? You know, the, the main thing I'd, I'd say, one thing I haven't talked a lot about directly, but it, it probably has come through what I've said, is, um, is you know, the concept of being values-driven and being true to your values. And I, you know, I, I mentioned that EQ work I did way back when, and one of the things I learned in that was that I wasn't very good at knowing how I felt. Um, which sounds kind of crazy, but um, it's probably a bit the way Kiwi blokes are built, unfortunately, and it's a real weakness. Um, I, I remember I remember going through a restructure at Telecom one time, and I'd been I'd been told that I was okay and I was going to get this job, and and um, my wife said to me, "You know, you you're really stressed out about this restructure, aren't you?" And I said, "No. Why would I be?" the logic part of my brain was saying um you're okay you're not going to lose your job therefore you should not be stressed and therefore i was telling myself i was not stressed but of course she knows my my feelings better than anyone she was saying well you are stressed just just admit it and i was going no no i'm not stressed i'm not stressed <laughs> but but um and then i did this eq work and i went huh i really don't i really don't understand what the hell's going in my brain and what what was going on i think is the logic part of my brain was telling myself how I felt, um, regardless of how I actually felt. So it was about just letting go even, just feeling what you feel. It sounds very touchy-feely. But, uh, we love but that on the show. Paul. We yeah. love that on the show. But, you know, you, 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 you seriously do need to reflect on that and, um, and understand your own feelings before you can even start to be empathetic for other people. And... Um, yeah, I think you can read just about any decent leadership book will talk about the power of empathy um, and how important that is in leadership and true leadership. So for me, that was a really important thing for me to try and unlock. Um, but just back to the values and the, and the things that, that really drive me. Um, and it's probably pretty simple. You know, it's... Um, and if I said two, it would be authenticity. So the ability to be yourself um, wherever you are. And that doesn't mean that doesn't mean being, you know, being not empathetic. So you can't just be yourself if being yourself is not going to help get what you're trying to get across. Um, I'm being a wee bit clumsy in the way I'm talking about that. But you know, you know what I mean? You just can't be brutally honest if it's gonna cause offense or whatever so you've got to be yourself you've got to be authentic um well, i heard well, something the other day paul just to interrupt you sorry yeah that was that ties in with that beautifully i can't remember the quote exactly but it went along the lines of advice without solution without a viable solution is abuse <laughs> yeah what do you think yeah, about that right. just yeah, yeah. continue nah, for sure um and the other value for me is respect um, I did mention that earlier when I was talking about my mum particularly. Um, so it's respect for others and it's also, I think, a big driver for me is, you know, being liked is nice, but being respected is way more important. And when I know that's one of my core values because when I see something that lacks respect, it really gets my back up. You know, you, you, you can feel that. You can feel yourself getting hot or, or flustered or whatever. And, just like, you know, that, that's the thing that really drives me. So I think it's authenticity and respect are, the, are my two core values that, um, that I want to bring to my role. And just being straight up and, and uh, doing everything I can to bring out the best in other people. Well, Paul, I must say, I, I didn't really know what to expect coming into this. Um, but you've exceeded my expectations by a country mile. And 
It's been an absolute delight. Thank you for sharing your story with us today on the Become Your Own Superhero Show. If you are in New Zealand, get down to Coronet Peak, the Remarkables, or Mount Hutt immediately. They are absolutely phenomenal ski ski slopes, and this the staff there are from firsthand experience. They are phenomenal. Everyone's incredibly passionate. The Kias will rip the wiper blades off your car in the car park. So just keep an eye out for that. But I must say, thank you so much for your time, Paul, and thank you so much. It's been my, my pleasure, Laven. Great, great to meet you. By by by, e meet you, and looking forward to having a beer when you can get over here. It's Laven Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.